Hi, I'm Zhang Mei, and this is the China Travel Podcast by Wild China. Each episode, we visit a different destination in China with a special guest. And when we say a destination, it can be as big as a province, or sometimes as small as a village, or sometimes it may be a field of study, or simply a way of life. So today's topic is on teaching and learning. Now these days, with Eileen Gu winning the gold in Beijing Olympics, many Chinese parents, either in China or around the world, are in awe of her success, both as an athlete and as a student. Particularly the fact that she's going to Stanford impressed many parents. So there's an enormous amount of conversation in Chinese about how to educate our children. That's why we're discussing teaching and learning. And today. I've invited someone who spent his entire life, entire career, really、uh, studying China and studying Chinese. In fact, early on, right? So we're going to talk about all of that. And so with me today is renowned China scholar Dr. Joe Eschrick to discuss scholarship, education, teaching, and learning, or anything else that comes to life in the course of our time together. Um, a very simple bio of Dr. Joe Ashrick. Joe is emeritus professor of history at the University of California, San Diego, and he is the author of many, many books: Origins of the Boxer Rebellion, Ancestral Leaves,、um, among a few, and many other work on modern Chinese history. And、um, Joe received his BA from Harvard University. Before the Chinese、uh, Cultural Revolution, actually, yeah, right, nineteen sixty four, nineteen sixty four, fantastic. And later on, did his BA and、uh, MA and PhD from、um, University of California, Berkeley. So, welcome, Joe. Thanks for taking the time. It's a pleasure to be here. All <laughs> right, thank you. Now we will start simply talking about learning Chinese. It seems. A nightmare for children who are not growing up in China, because in China it's such a regimented process of learning. And I look at my children now in school in America. I look at their AP textbooks, and I'm sorry to say it. In my memory, of course, it looked like elementary school textbooks in China, and、uh, that is very sad. How how do you learn Chinese well if you are not in the Chinese system? Well, you have to go to China. I think it's really as simple as that. I I don't think there's any way to learn a foreign language except by immersion.、Uh, to be within the culture, within the society, and having to. Speak Chinese all the time、uh, and respond to people and understand people who are speaking Chinese and catch, assimilate,、uh, gradually get used to the way people actually speak. I can totally relate to your reaction to the <laughs> textbooks here. My children also took. Chinese here in the United States, and I was appalled at you know what they were forced to learn in the high school and especially、uh, you know K through twelve、uh, mm-hmm. education. It's very common for students to want to know well how do you say hello? Well, 
anyone who's been to China uh, knows that it's only when you're speaking to a foreigner that you say ni hao ma um, <laughs> that you know it becomes a a way that that uh, you know you greet a foreigner because that's the way they're used to learning to say how are you today um, whereas I mean I can remember when I first went to Shandong University to do my research on the boxers. Well, one second, where did you go? That, uh, Shandong University. Shandong.、Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was in 1979.、Okay. And of, of course, nobody said ni hao ma.、Uh, um, you know, I, I would run into a colleague、uh, on the street, and you know, the natural reaction would go chuo mail.、Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, have you eaten? And You know, at first I said, "Well, you know, it's it's ten o'clock in the morning. Of course, I've eaten." But it, that you know was not what it is. It's just the way you greeted somebody, and you know the response would not be "ni chuo ma" or "dangran chuo." It's you know maybe you would say you know I've eaten or chuo,、uh, but then you would say "ni hai zhen nar." You would ask about their kids, or you would ask about、uh, where they're going, or something like that. But anyway, the greeting would not be "ni hao ma," "How are you?" That's the sort of thing that you only get from immersion in the society and living with it. When I first went to China, and actually I went to Hong Kong, I had already had two years of Chinese. But I remember I went to rent a room. I was staying with a family. And they asked me if I had a, any bedding. I had no idea what they were talking about.、Uh, I didn't know what a beza was. Yo me beza. You know, do you have a, a quilt? And then later, actually, my best language teacher was a five-year-old girl in the family, whose father was in the hospital, so she was. Very lonely,、mm-hmm. and she would just chatter away all the time. And basically, I would just have to say, "Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, Jonasha,、mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, just make any kind of reaction." And she'd keep chattering, and I would gradually begin to learn some. At one point, you know, she kept talking about a elephant, about a dachshund. And I, Dashiell, I finally, I'm not going to be able to to fake it on this conversation anymore unless I know what a Dashiell is. And and she was amazed that I could watch the news, I could read the paper, but I had no idea what an elephant was. That was、uh, the, the kind of vocabulary that was common to her. I totally appreciate that. You know, going to the place and living in the culture and the context is the best way.、Mm-hmm. But for a lot of kids, they actually have to test. You know, memorize the strokes of the characters, and each time when my kid looks at a character and says, "Oh, it looks like this." It, it it frustrates me, and I'm like, in Chinese, it's so precise. You can't say it looks like. <laughs> it can only be is or is not, <laughs> right? And that brute force memorization is really not part of the American education system. When did you first learn the characters before you went? 
Well, I, of course, I had taken two years of Chinese at Harvard. And you that's did, the beginning. That, you never did it before. I never did it before. No, I, I didn't start until till Harvard because I didn't even know I was interested in Chinese uh, or China before. Uh, so I had to make a choice because I wanted to study something about foreign countries. Mm-hmm. I had to make a choice of language. I knew French, but I wasn't going to study France and I wasn't going to study the Francophone world. Uh, so I had to learn something. So it was, it was either Russian or Chinese, and mm-hmm. I decided to study Chinese. So I had no experience before Harvard. And even that, of course, was late, but yeah. uh, it required uh, going there. And mm-hmm. when I was the head of the UC study abroad program, uh, there were in Beijing. Mm. And there were a number of Chinese American students in that Mm. uh, group who also went to China to learn Chinese. And, you know, uniformly, they would talk about their parents forcing them to go to Chinese school on Saturdays, and they hated it. (laughs) Um, But then, of course, when they got there, they realized how beneficial it, it had been to them. So the best thing that one can offer here is this kind of Chinese school on weekends or after school or something like that. But I think one has to anticipate that the kids are going to hate it uh, and the kids are going to resent it. And then parent just has to decide how much do you want to endure the children's antipathy to this uh, until they get a chance to actually go there. So there is no shortcut. I think there's no shortcut. Now, what prompted you to study China in the early 1960s? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, it's a long story and it's accidental and I don't think it has any particular significance. But basically, I was interested in foreign things and I was an undergraduate of limited imagination, and so I only thought about big countries. And so I thought about uh, Russia and China and India. And I took courses related to all of them. But uh, India, I was thinking about economics, and the person who taught uh, economic development was John Kenneth Galbraith. And I was captivated by his lectures, but he was appointed ambassador to India. So that was the end of that. Uh, So then came down to Russia or China. And the people who studied Russia or the Soviet Union at that point basically didn't like Russia. Uh, Mm -hmm. It it was a cold country. It was living under communism. Uh, Living there was difficult. uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, the political system was oppressive. And, you know, you basically heard nothing but complaints from them about Russia and life in Russia. Interesting. Whereas uh, for China, my professor was, was John King Fairbank. Oh, who had lived in China during the 1930s and had very fond memories of China. And his lectures were full of 
Chinese history and background and culture and so on. It was a very positive uh, picture of China at the time. So uh, that was much more attractive to me than uh, the studying the Soviet Union. So uh, I decided, okay, I'm not going to learn Russian. I'm going to learn Chinese. Good choice. <laughs> I think China has better food. Um, uh, so then when did you, how many years did you study the language per se before you made the leap from the looking at Chinese as a language study to critically think about making China the subject of deeper studies, critical thinking about its issues, relations. How did you make those decisions? That pretty much happened all at the same time. Language initially was just a tool that I had to have to study the history of the politics or the art or the culture or anything like that, which was where my interest was. So I needed to have the language in order to do that. And mm. so uh, I learned Chinese language basically in order to study Chinese history and politics. I actually was a government student at that time. Uh, that's what Harvard called political science. Okay. Uh, and only became a history student because government required me to take a course that I didn't want to take. Um, and so I left at a huff and went into the history department and they took me in. So <laughs> no, that's very different. So you actually had your goal already in, in studying Chinese history and politics and culture, all that. But nowadays, a lot of kids are studying Chinese more as a functional language, mm -hmm. right? They're looking to either converse in Chinese or possibly in the future pursue a business relationship. Mm -hmm. Much, I, I think there's less thinking of focusing on China studies as a scholarly pursuit. Do you agree with that? I think that's probably true. And I, and I have to admit, in this in, in this case, you know, my experience is probably not that relevant to uh, students. Now, I, I was I was a nerd from the start uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I'm a nerd still. Uh, and so I, I was going to follow a, a scholarly career. With decades, you studied China and then you taught China. So decades of experience in teaching graduate programs related mm -hmm. to China's history, right? And you've seen many students and scholars from all over the world in particular. You also had quite a few from China. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So I remember at dinner the other night and we were talking about graduate students and you, you, you made a comment. I'm paraphrasing, so mm -hmm. correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, you say something like, a lot of Chinese students are very good at learning, but they run into challenges in graduate programs because they now have to learn how to study. And the learning and the study surprised me. Tell us, what do you mean by that? Well, I think one of the ways I would put it uh, and try to think about it, both in terms of my own students and my own kids uh, and the experience of education, in primary school, basically, the teacher is conveying information to you that the kids have to absorb. Right. How to spell things, where the countries are, how many states there are, and what the capitals are in the United States, uh, all these sort of things. It's basically information that has to be absorbed and some degree memorized. And I would say the Chinese educational system does this superbly, and the American education system does it 
less adequately. Um, so that's primary K through 12 education. Yeah. Uh, and undergraduate education is not too different from that, but you want students to some degree to think a little bit critically uh, about this. And so in teaching an undergraduate, you try at least introduce different perspectives. But still, you know, I think by and large, the teachers says, you know, this perspective is really better. The students will pick up uh, what the teacher's perspective is, and the student in examination will then uh, try to mimic the teacher's perspective in order to get a better grade. So there's not that much difference. When you get to an MA level, then we get a little bit closer to critical learning and Mm. studying. And at least there you get an ability to say, oh, this book is of this perspective and that book is of that perspective. And my perspective is this. Uh, So you you are able to sort of put books in uh, different categories and then you're able to assimilate those and uh, hopefully come up with some of your own uh, perspective. But it's really only with PhD students, and I always found that the most difficult thing was to turn an MA student into a PhD student when they really had to generate some truth of their own, some Hmm. understanding of their own, some perspective of their own. And that required an original work of scholarship, not just assimilating others and summarizing other people's views, uh, but actually coming out with their own view. And that's the, the sort of progression through the educational system in which gradually over here, I think there is a tendency to try to develop the student's capacity for independent thinking. And here I often make the distinction between teaching and learning. Mm-hmm. And the teacher's responsibility, especially in K through 12 and as undergraduate, is basically to convey information. And the student's responsibility is to absorb that information. But learning, involves a change in the mind on the student's part and the student's ability to think on their own and come up with their own point of view, not just adequate or superlative mimicking of the teacher's view and reproduction of the teacher's view on their examination and Mm -hmm. so on. And that's where I think uh, the American education system has its advantage and the Chinese education system actually uh, falls behind a little bit. So uh, let let me absorb this, um, see if I got it right. So in some ways, most people's, well, my understanding of learning initially was just absorbing information Mm -hmm. I I receive from Mm -hmm. the teacher. It's a one way. Mm transfer of knowledge I take from the teacher. Um, But elevating the learning to true learning is Mm -hmm. really 
studying what you mean by beyond absorbing language information, you process it mm -hmm. and produce mm -hmm. uh, more original thinking on mm -hmm. your own. And but mm -hmm. that comes with higher education, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it's interesting. I'll give you one anecdote of. I actually think in the U.S. this effort to stimulate critical thinking, I think, starts very, very young. You, you know, Sophie, my 11-year-old, well, when she was 11, they were studying ancient civilization in their history class, uh, humanities. And she came back and I said, oh, which, where, where, which civilization are you studying? And she says, everywhere. Indian, Egyptian, Chinese, Nubian. And I said, wait, wait, wait. These are all the civilizations of the world. <laughs> How are you studying them all simultaneously? She says, oh, yeah. The teacher just asks us, there are 20 kids in the class, which one do you like to study? And you pick your own. And then you go and study on your own. You find out about them. But the teacher will, let's discuss when we talk about the civilization, what does it mean? Like, what are the elements? We need to study the language, where they live, how they build houses. Do they have kids? Do they have religion? Do they have all these various... So, so the teacher really lays out the framework of studying civilization and let the kids go free. 11-year-olds. Mm -hmm. I was in shock because my entire textbook of learning history, we follow the textbook. Today, we're at 2021 years BC. This is when Qin Shi Huang built China, unified China, right? And everyone moves at the same pace, studying the same dates and same facts. I did not do any of these sort of digging around what the civilization was about until graduate school, college. So in some ways, I think it unleashed the creative thinking, but as you were saying, in other ways, I wonder if the foundation of memorization is solid enough in the in the U.S. education system. There, there is definitely that trade-off, and there is that problem that exists. If if you look at any of the international standards of achievement uh, of K through 12 education. Uh, the Americans they stand way down in the international list on how, how well they score uh, on that in uh, language and knowledge of geography and uh, history um, mm. and, and of course in, in mathematics. Uh, mm -hmm. So, uh, on all of those things that are sort of the imparting of knowledge that can be tested by objective tests, the American education system performs quite poorly. But on the other hand, uh, we do encourage this independent thinking uh, and critical thinking and multiple perspectives and so on. And there's always this trade-off that, you know, how far you should go in one direction or the other. My own feeling on this is that the Chinese education system performs 
exceptionally well at the K through 12 level. I remember, for example, when our own daughter went to China uh, and she was supposed to go into the third grade here in the United States, but that would have meant, because she didn't know any Chinese characters, um, that she would have to learn three years of characters in one year. Mm -hmm. And we said that was too much, um, but she would go into second grade. That means she'd only have to use, learn two years of characters in, in one year. Yeah. But I thought, well, we better bring a third year math book so that we could make sure that when she goes back to the United States, she can go into the fourth grade and, and know third year math. <laughs> well, we quickly discovered that uh, everything she had learned in second year math in China was more advanced than she was going to learn in the third year math in the textbook that I had brought. And the only thing we needed to do was to uh, get her to translate the multiplication tables uh, into English. Um, and uh, she wasn't going to have any difficulty with the, with the concepts. You just have to remember how you say times in Chinese uh, and English uh, mm -hmm. and how you say divided by and so on. So anyway, um, you know, basically, Second year mathematics was third year mathematics. Second year mathematics in China was third year mathematics in uh, or arithmetic in, in the United States. Yeah. China was already ahead at the second grade level, but you had one teacher teaching 50 students, basically wrote memory uh, mm -hmm. of things. Mm -hmm. We used to do uh, it was one of our rituals that we had great fun with, uh, and she enjoyed. She had to do tingxie, which is uh, essentially um, dictation, uh, dictation mm -hmm. uh, every every day. And so she would come home with uh, ten new characters. She should have to do dictation of, and she'd have to write. And so when she'd finished her studying, I would be called in and her mother would read the character and she and I would both have to write it. And then after that, she would correct mine. And, you know, it would be, uh, she got great joy and she got the red pen and Baba, yeah, boy, you guys should go by, uh, you know, that, you know, there, there, there shouldn't be a hook at the bottom of this. That ain't, and so, um, we, we did that every night. Um, and she did much better than I did it, to this day. My writing of Chinese characters is terrible. Thank God for computer programs that they write then, them then for how, you. Then how do you do all the like classic Chinese reading and research that you have to do? I can read. But I can't write. Somehow my mind uh, separated those two. Aha, uh -huh. um, very interesting. And I learned how to read, you know, relatively easily, although learning Chinese is a lifetime process. And uh, especially when I was writing Ancestral Leaves and was trying to read 19th century Chinese poetry. Uh, which is full of classical allusions and so on and so forth. Mm. Uh, I would constantly have to refer to dictionaries. And sometimes I actually had 
Chinese colleagues who were experts on poetry and would have to ask them. And sometimes even they would not be able to do it. They would say, you know, I'm really not sure exactly what this means here. What uh, It's a lifetime process. Tell us about this book, Ancestral Leaves. I know of it, but um, for our audience sake, tell us. Well, it's a book really about my the paternal line of my wife's family. Yeah. Uh, and their surname is Ye, which means leaf in yeah. Chinese. So mm-hmm. that's the reason for the title, Ancestral Leaves. So these are the ancestral Ye's. Her father had written a memoir. And when we were in China, we discovered that her great-grandfather had written uh, something of an autobiography. And then I had discovered that the great-great-grandfather had a collection of poetry, which was in the Library of Congress. uh, In the United States. In the United States. Yeah, we never found it a copy in China, um, although there is a copy in the, in the United States. And then uh, in 1995, we went back to the ancestral home, and they had a genealogy there, which had not survived in any of the people in the urban areas where if any genealogy existed, they would have been destroyed in the Cultural Revolution because it was a elite family and probably landlords and so on and so uh, be counter-revolutionary family. And so people did not want to keep that yeah, kind we, of thing. But the in, the, in the village, uh, the village member, it was called the Yeah Village. Mm. And so it was all Yeah that lived there. And so they weren't going to destroy their genealogy. And so they had one there. Mm. Um, so that provided the ability to write about this history of the family. The genealogy begins in the Ming Dynasty. So it goes back to the 14th century. The really intense documentation begins in the early 19th century. So I was able to write about the 19th and 20th century, these the imperial, the Republican China, and the PRC mm-hmm. history of this family. So It was an attempt to humanize the history of China. I always had frustration that there wasn't enough human dimension in the histories that I had to assign to students. And so it was written uh, as an undergraduate text, although unfortunately it never really performed that function in the United States. It it sold much better in China, uh, and it's much more widely used in China than here. Yeah, I, I know it's uh, sold really well in China. And among all the Chinese readers, and they must have told you what about the book that struck them most. Well, I, I do have to confess a certain degree of frustration here. I was most uh, pleased with the imperial China, the 19th century, the end of the empire section. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I thought I really got that right. And I was saying some things that I thought were relatively new. Uh, China uh, mostly wrote in their uh, reviews and critiques and so on about contemporary China. Um, And so it was the third section of the book about uh, China under the communists that they liked the best. 
I think that to a large degree, it was because I was saying things that they couldn't say. Mm. Um, the, my wife's father uh, was imprisoned during the anti-rightist campaign mm. in 1958. Mm -hmm. And he spent 18 years in jail. Wow. And so his memoir talks about the whole process of his greeting the communists with enthusiasm and wanting to work with them. And he had worked with communists before the revolution and he greeted the new China with great enthusiasm, but then ended up being persecuted uh, mercilessly and then ultimately jailed for many long years. And so that was a, a story that resonated with many Chinese. Uh, even if they had not themselves been and, and in the, prison. the entire translation did not cut censor that part out? Uh, relatively little. Wow. Um, it, I, I had to go through some fights with the censor uh, over that, but the, the, the initial censoring was so ridiculous. To give one example, they censored a passage where I said, Sun Yat-sen had uh, supported the alliance with the communists, but he did not approve of class struggle. And they wanted to take that out. Well, that's common knowledge. Uh, mm -hmm. Everybody knew that Sun Yat-sen did that. So. Uh, circling back to education, uh, since you looked at sort of the imperial China as well as the current China, I feel like our education system is so deeply rooted in the Chinese sort of, we talked about this, the imperial examination. What do you, what are your views on that? Well, I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, the Chinese examination system, while it had ancient roots, really in something close to the modern form, um, began in about the 800s. And then by, uh, after the, the Mongol, dynasties in the Ming dynasty in the 14th century assumed, you know, what pretty much was its final form uh, in the imperial system. Mm -hmm. And it was a very tightly regulated uh, examination system mm -hmm. uh, at the county level, at the prefectural level, at the provincial level, and at the national level, in which you had to reproduce uh, essentially proper answers to questions about the classics and the Confucian uh, analects and so on and so forth. Um, and some questions on uh, current policies, although they didn't pay that much attention to those, that really mm -hmm. was the Confucian. So people in the preparing for these exams learn to memorize all the classics and all the commentaries on the classics and to reproduce uh, a established knowledge on how these classics were to be understood. Mm -hmm. So the examination system, one was a national examination system run by the state. Two, it was intensely policed so that, uh, for example, at the higher levels, <clears throat> your examination essay was transcribed by a copyist so that an examiner could not recognize your handwriting 
uh, and that uh, could somehow favor uh, someone who had your handwriting. So there were any number of uh, defenses against uh, any kind of favoritism or corruption uh, in, in the examinations. Or cheating. Uh, or cheating. Yeah. Uh, so that um, there was uh, cheating went on. People uh, used to, there, there are still copies. I, I think there's one at Princeton University, a so called examination robe, robe where the the full text of the Confucian classics were sewn inside uh, <laughs> the robe that you would use in the examination. Even though I, I once heard the, I saw the picture of the architecture sort of exam hall, each mm-hmm. one gets a little cell yeah. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, you get a little cell and you have to stay in there for three days. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, you have your food uh, uh, delivered to you, you have a little pot to urinate in, and they, they take it away uh, periodically and so on. Uh, you know, you have to stay in there. So anyway, there's a very long tradition of national examinations in an established curriculum that students have to memorize. And that continued under the Nationalist Party, under the Guomindang, Uh, And, of course, it continued in China today, where there are national examinations, and you have to reproduce the proper answers to these questions. Mm. I think I I told you the other day, you know, my own experience with this, uh, I, it used to be that the questions were later published in the newspaper. And I one time decided I would go try to see how I would do on the history exam. And you mean the Gaokao? On the Gaokao, yeah. Uh, the, the higher, uh, the college exa- entrance examination. Mm-hmm. I didn't get a single answer right. No. I, I got it all wrong. Um, because every right answer, and I went back through it, I could think of some reason why, no, that's not completely right. Uh, you know, what about this or what about that or what about this perspective or that? And so I, I got them all wrong. Whereas if I had been educated in the Chinese system, I would know what was the right answer because that was the established interpretation of this event. It was not the kind of critical thinking that I had been educated in to think of why this might not be true, uh, that was not the kind of education that the Chinese students had uh, received. They had received an education that told them this is the right answer to this question. And they had prepared for uh, all of those things. So the Chinese educational system with a state-run examinations and essentially multiple choice questions of which there is one right answer, taught you to think in terms of one right answer. The American educational system at its best teaches it, well, it might be this or it might be that. What do you think? And you reason through this question uh, mm-hmm. and you think about this question and th- then we attempt to try to find what is the most logical reason 
based on facts that are verifiable. That is very interesting because a friend and I were discussing about the Chinese education system, about its function. It functions really well in managing education en masse because the number of test takers, if they took an approach like how your professors might take with you, your answers could be one of 10 different ideas. They would have no way to grade all those papers in time. Mm-hmm. But with such a large population, the examinational education system there almost performs the, the function of filtering people. The ones who score high, mm-hmm. at least they're assuming, the ones who score high have a couple of things going for them. They work hard. <laughs> You've got to, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, they're smart mm-hmm. enough to to memorize. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, you have to have a bit ability to reiterate what you've memorized. Mm-hmm. You may not have original thinking. Mm-hmm. So those are, for the Chinese system, good enough mm-hmm. to be filtered into sort of the, the ones taking responsibility to lead a certain society. Mm-hmm. Then they put you in mm-hmm. college education to, to go further. Mm-hmm. It's worth noting here that the United States is the outlier uh, in this, in this approach to education and, and approach to filtering. The Japanese have a very similar education system to the Chinese and also have a national examination system um, and also have essentially this filtering system, Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, and many European countries. But I can remember uh, a conversation I had with uh, graduate students uh, at Beida 10, 15 years ago, uh, in which they said, Peking University students are filtered to be the best and the smartest in the country. And they come here to Beida and they're turned into dummies. That's so um, sad. That they're, you know, uh, they've been miseducated um, because they've lost the ability to think on their own. And I think there is a, a degree of merit to that. Um, you, you look at really able students in China now, if they can get into an American university, if they can get into a Yale or a Harvard, they're going to go there. They're not going to go to Peking University. They're, they're going to go abroad. Um, and if there's one thing that American society does still reasonably well. I think it is university education. That's very interesting. As you were speaking, I was looking back and thinking among the professors and scholars that I've met in China, in fact, are the ones at the very top, regardless of whether they are in Beijing or in the US, mm-hmm. there is quite a bit original thinking and groundbreaking so, so somehow it is succeeding in a, in a different way. One of the primatologists in Yuna who studies Yuna's numbers mm-hmm. monkeys, his brain is just a, a supercomputer that mm-hmm. he can call up each, each monkey's name and mm-hmm. date of birth and how many children, how many wives he has. And he tells wonderful anecdotes. Now, looking back, um, 
So uh, to, to wrap back to our earlier sort of pursuit of other Chinese parents, whether in the U.S. or in China or parents anywhere, the perfect recipe of education success. And in the Chinese, I, I remember seeing it on WeChat, uh, someone was talking, Eileen Gu would be educated in the somewhere, I think, South Bay. Um, go to school here so she has all the time for 10 hours of sleep and also all her ski training and sports and stuff. But she would go to, her mom would take her to Beijing. Haibian near Beida, mm -hmm. uh, probably one of the camps run by Beida or Tsinghua universities for 10 days intensive academic education. And that's enough to mm -hmm. let her coast through mm -hmm. to academic success in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Is that the recipe? Is that, <laughs> is that the recipe you would recommend? If you have the money to uh, go to such a summer camp in China. Uh, I don't think the camp would be very expensive. It's probably uh, all the travel. Well, it's the travel. But if something like that is possible, I would say uh, absolutely. Any experience going abroad to China, to Taiwan, even to Europe, is eye-opening to realize that we are one country in a big world that is very diverse, and there are a lot of different views and opinions and customs and cultures and food and ways of living and ways of enjoying yourself. And some appreciation of that, I think, is always beneficial. Very wise words. Mm. Very wise. Mm. In the end, that mm. is what education is about, mm. broadening your, yeah. your mind, mm. you know, yeah. your, your eyes. Thank you for that. Okay, one last question. Since you read all the books, <laughs> single out three books, if you can, oh or one <laughs> or ten, <laughs> that, that you think someone would absolutely need to read. Well, I'm going to start with the book that I reacted against and therefore wrote Ancestral Leaves as an alternative to, and that's Wild Swans. Yes. I like it because it's a personal story mm -hmm. and it is rich and it is human and you can see the family relationships and the social relationships and you can get within the society to some degree mm -hmm. uh, and see that on a human level. And it takes it down from the high politics and China is this or China is that and so on and so forth. When I used to assign it, I always used to teach against it as much as for it. Because, put simply, she's very negative on her father and very positive on her mother. Actual family dynamics and how it works, uh, I, I think, gets lost you know, it's a bag of three generations of Chinese women. Yeah. So it, it, it has that. But I, I think we don't see the extent to which the women are also using their husband's reputation uh, to gain the advantage that they do. So, But I still think it's a great book, but it, you, you have to read it with a degree of skepticism. Yeah. In a similar type of book, I think the book that Yue Daiyun wrote with Carolyn Wakeman called To the Storm. It's the, the story of a 
loyal communist in the 1950s who then gets victimized in the anti-rightist movement. And I think finally, partly because he just passed away, Jonathan Spence, his books. And I was interested and even a little bit amused by a number of the obituaries that people wrote in which they talked about the first book he wrote, To Change China. It's a book that in many ways is dated, and I think he later would have said much too simple and so on and so forth. But it's the story of a a number of foreigners from the Jesuits of the uh, 17th century to the Soviets of the, the 1950s who went to China to try to change it and their frustrations um, <laughs> and, and how China was resistant to change. But resistant, uh, you know, it, it's told with a very sympathetic view that, you know, mm. basically these foreigners didn't know what they're talking about and were trying to change a society that was working quite well. Thank you. His later book that I like a lot, The Death of Woman Wong, which was another one that was much talked about in the obituaries. Well, thank you, Joe. It's It's been a a delightful (laughs) conversation. I almost feel like, you know, uh, with our cup of tea, we can just sit back and then bring out a book from the shelf and continue to travel through history. Any parting words for anyone who's listening about education and learning Chinese going to China? Send your kids to China. I would add with Wild China. (laughs) (laughs) When the time comes. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the China Travel Podcast, produced by Wild China Travel and hosted by me, Wild China founder Zhang Mei. For every episode, you can find a summary with timestamps and a list of resources on our website, wildchina.com. If you enjoy this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at Wild China Travel or me personally at Wild China May. That is M E I. Thank you and see you next time.